Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. So I'm going to begin my sermon this morning with a profoundly important, thought-provoking, deep, reflective, theological question. Are you ready? Is anybody here into rock and roll? Anybody into rock and roll? Okay, just a few people. Well, back in 2004, Rolling Stone magazine identified what they considered the greatest rock and roll song of all time. You may disagree with this, but this is what they identified as the greatest rock and roll song of all time. Anybody want to take a guess? Stairway to Heaven. People have said that at the last service as well. Anybody else? Rock of Ages. What's that? Hotel California, okay. Well, I'm sorry, but none of those answers are correct. The correct answer, according to Rolling Stone magazine at least, I'm not sure how they determined this. They must have had some sort of, you know, determining factors. But the song that they identified was Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Y'all don't like that? Oh, it's okay. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. We'll tell Bob Dylan exactly how you feel, right? Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Now, just a bit of background. Bob Dylan recorded Like a Rolling Stone in June of 1965 in Studio A at the headquarters of Columbia Records in New York City. But the thing that made surprises about this song, considering that it's been identified as the greatest rock and roll song of all time, is that this song, believe it or not, almost never made it out of the studio. You see, what happened when Bob Dylan initially recorded this song back in 1965, he and his manager listened to it, and they loved it. They thought it was a great song. They thought it was a terrific song, fantastic song, and they expected this song to be released to the public immediately. And most of the people at Columbia Records loved it too, but not everybody. The sales and marketing people were not convinced. The sales and marketing people uh, had two objections to this song. Number one, they said that this song, like a Rolling Stone, did not fit with mainstream music at that time in the 1960s. And their other objection, number two, is that the song was too long. Do you know how long this song is? I don't think it's quite as long as Miss American Pie, but it's a pretty long song. It's five minutes and 59 seconds, one second shy of six minutes. Now, most radio songs that got played during that period were about three minutes. So the sales and marketing people did not believe that radio stations would play it. And so they came to Bob Dylan, and they proposed a compromise. Compromises always work well, don't they? They proposed a compromise. Hey, Bob Dylan, why didn't you cut your song in half? How do you think he reacted? He was not too happy about that. He was actually pretty offended. He said, no way. I'm not cutting this song in half. This song is perfect just the way that it is. So they were at an impasse. So what happened was the song went into the category of unassigned release. Unassigned release. And that's probably where it would have stayed. We might not know about this song today in the 21st century had it not been for the quick thinking 
of a man named Sean Considine. Sean Considine was an employee at Columbia, and he had actually been present in the room when the demo was played. He liked the song. He loved the song. He expected that the song would be released. But then much to his surprise, a few months later, he was going through a stack of demo tapes to be tossed in the garbage. That's when he came across like a rolling stone. And he thought to himself, what's going on here? This is a great song. Why hasn't the song been released yet? So he asked some questions, and then he found out that the sales and marketing people had put up roadblocks. So he went around them. He took a recording of the song, went to one of the premier clubs of Manhattan, and he asked the DJ to do what? Spin it. The DJ did what the DJ does. The DJ spun the song. The people at the club were listening. They loved it. They danced to it. And there was actually a music programmer in attendance that evening. He called Columbia Records the next morning demanding, not kindly asking, but demanding that this song be released. So the song was released. And the rest, as they say, is history. The greatest rock and roll song of all time, at least according to Rolling Stone magazine, again, you can disagree about this, it's all right, but the greatest rock and roll song of all time might never have seen the light of day had it not been for Sean Considine. Sean Considine, this Columbia employee, he, he saw the potential of that song. He had a vision for that song that other people didn't have. Vision is a powerful thing, isn't it? Vision helps us dream up new worlds, new possibilities, explore new fronts. And in the context of following God, vision has another dimension. Vision, and this is up here, vision is what God gives us so that we can move from one reality into a new reality, a different reality, what we might call God's preferred reality. Can you say those three words with me? God's preferred reality. Think about this. God gave Noah a vision, didn't he? To build an ark and to bring with him his family and two of every animal because a flood was coming. God gave Abraham a vision to leave behind his family and his country, everything that he knew, to go to another land so that he could become the father of many nations. And out of one of these nations, uh, Israel, the Messiah would one day come. God gave Moses a vision when he was 80 years old to go down into Egypt to demand that Pharaoh release God's people from bondage. God gave Rahab a vision, didn't he? To protect the spies who entered the promised land. And God gave Joshua a vision after Moses had passed away to lead the Israelites into the promised land. God gave Deborah a vision to lead God's people into battle against their enemies. God gave David a vision when he was king to unite the 12 tribes of Israel and to bring together the northern and the southern kingdoms. God gave Esther a vision to speak to King Xerxes, a very scary thing to do, and demand that the king spare God's people from certain annihilation. God gave Mary a vision when she was just a teenage girl to give birth to the Son of God, to parent the promised one, to play a profound role in the story of God's salvation. God gave the disciples a vision to follow this guy, Jesus, and then after the resurrection, to take the gospel message to every corner of the earth. You see, folks, throughout the scriptures, in both the Old and New Testaments, we see this um, story, this narrative play out time and again. 
that the people of God are living in one reality, and then through a vision, either given to one person or even a group of people sometimes, God leads them into a new reality, his preferred reality. Because if God's not the one leading us, if God's not the one guiding us and directing us, then what are we doing? We're just making it up as we go. Flying by the seat of our pants. Not living into the potential that God has for us in Jesus. This is how the sage describes vision in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. In fact, Pastor John Peterson, in his sermon last week, he referred to this verse. Uh, Let's read this together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Normally, I like to read modern translations of Scripture. This is actually from the King James Version. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, perish in this context isn't necessarily about disappearing or being destroyed, although could involve those things, but I think in this context, it's not becoming all that God intends for us to be. Not becoming all that God intends for us to be. So that leads me to a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but just think about it. Are we at Asbury becoming all that God intends for us to be? Are we living into God's preferred reality for our church? I came to Asbury just over two and a half years ago. Maybe it feels longer to you, but it's been two and a half years. In January of 2021, and when I came to Asbury, one of the first things I discovered when I came here, after meeting with all of you and and leaders in our church, people in the congregation, one thing I immediately discovered and picked up on is that this is a church with a rich and glorious past. Amen? And those of you who have been at this church for years, you already know that to be true. This is a church with a rich and glorious past. But like any church, in any organization for that matter, this is true of virtually every organization, we needed to develop ongoing clarity about our future, where God was leading us. And so what we did, after I had been here for about a year, At the end of 2021, I got here in January, this was around December or so, um, our lady council, our leadership team, they launched a vision team, a vision team to discern God's vision for Asbury. Now, this team was made up of a dozen people, just like Jesus had 12 disciples, this team was initially made up of a dozen people with an equal number of women and men, with people from the 930 service, people from this service, the 11 o'clock service, people who have been at the church a long time, and people who are relatively new, and thus may see things differently, have a different perspective than somebody who has been around a while. We tried to make this vision team as diverse as possible. We know that we would not be perfect with this, but we tried to make it as diverse as possible. So we met in person. This was the start of 2022. Uh, We met in person almost every other week for just over a year. Uh, We worked through a book on church vision casting, and the question that we kept before us was this. This is the question we kept before us. What is God's preferred reality for Asbury? What kind of church is God calling Asbury to be? And so from there, we had a conversation about our values and, and those things that are important to us. And one thing that became clear to us through our collective discernment is that this is a church, and hopefully you agree with this, this is a church 
that values spiritual formation. Aren't we a church that values spiritual formation? That this is a church, this is a congregation in which the people want to dig a well and grow deeply as disciples of Jesus Christ. So then from there, once we had established that, determined that, we had another conversation. All right? So spiritual formation is important. This is one of our values, maybe our top value. So how are we going to grow spiritually? How are we going to live into this? Yeah, we have our worship services on Sunday morning, and we have morning prayer on Facebook throughout the week, on the weekday mornings. We have our Sunday school classes, and we have occasional Bible studies that we offer. We have our United Methodist Men, and we have our United Women in Faith, and, and all these things are wonderful, and they're terrific, and we want to keep building on them. We want to keep improving them and refining them and, and encouraging folks to be a part of them. But one thing that became clear to us as we talked is that we needed something else. We needed something that was spiritual in nature, because spiritual formation is important to us, spiritual in nature, centered around scripture reading and in prayer and other practices that help us grow as Jesus followers in deeply relational. Not relational on a large scale. What we're doing right now in worship, this is relational, but it's relational on a large scale. We needed something that was relational on a small scale. No more than a dozen people. So what did we come up with? After all these meetings and conversations. Well, to be honest, it was nothing new. It was nothing innovative. It was nothing revolutionary, and that's okay. Actually, usually the church does well not to come up with something new, but rather to reclaim something old. Amen? Asbury has had them in the past. In fact, we still have a few of them in some circles of our congregation. The early church, those first followers of Jesus, had them. And in fact, the Methodist movement back in the 1700s, the Methodist movement thrived and flourished and grew under them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Say it louder. Small groups. Nothing new. Small groups. Only we decided to call them something else. Based on a conversation that we had with Pastor Mark Nix of Orangewood Presbyterian Church, one of our neighbors here in Maitland, uh, Pastor Mark Nix of that congregation, uh, he graciously met with us, and uh, he talked about how Orangewood does this, because Orangewood does this very well, and we want to learn from them. We want to follow their example in this regard. Well, we decided to call them community groups. Can you say that with me? community groups. Because spiritual formation, which is what we're after, it doesn't primarily happen when we're by ourselves in our own little silos. Spiritual formation happens most profoundly in community when we surround ourselves with other people, which really makes perfect sense because when we look to the scriptures and the claims of our faith, we discover the simple truth that God made us for community. Didn't he? God made us for community. Think about this with me. One of the core convictions of Christianity is that there is one God. How many gods are there? One God. However, at the same time, we believe that this one God exists from all eternity as a community of persons. Who are these persons? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We call this the Trinity. Now listen, the Trinity is not some math problem to be solved. 
Okay, how does one plus one plus one equal one? Now, it's not a math problem to be solved. The Trinity is a divine revelation. The Trinity is who God is. God has always been Trinity. From back in the Old Testament, God was Trinity then. God is Trinity right now. God will always be Trinity. God is, in and of himself, a community of persons. And you and I, we have been made in the image of this community God, haven't we? That's what it says in the opening page of the Bible. The first statement about humanity, we have been made in God's holy image, which means we have been made for community. We have been made for community with God, and we've been made for community with who? Each other. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor, in the same way that you love yourself. Love God, love people. We've been made for community. Do you know what the sad truth is? Instead of embracing community and the very relationships for which God made us, all scientific data shows that we are becoming increasingly isolated. On Thursday and Friday of this last week, I attended a leadership seminar. I do this every summer. I've been doing this for the past 10 years or so to grow as a leader. One of the speakers at that seminar shared a stat. Um, she said that rates of loneliness in our culture, and maybe you already know this, rates of loneliness have gone up exponentially over the last 40 to 50 years. In fact, today, well over 70% of adults, that's a seven and a zero, 70% of adults report feeling lonely. That's more than two-thirds of all Americans. In fact, loneliness has gotten so bad, it's become such an epidemic that many people have identified it as a major public health crisis. Uh, from 2014 to 2017, Vice Admiral Vivek H. Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. Well, here's what he had to say about loneliness. This is an article that he wrote some years ago. He said, during my tenure as U.S. Surgeon General, in my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. Then he gives examples. The elderly man who came to our hospital every few weeks seeking relief from chronic pain was also looking for human connection. He was lonely. The middle-aged woman battling advanced HIV who had no one to call to inform that she was sick. Imagine that. She was lonely too. I found that loneliness was often in the background of clinical illness contributing to disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan. Get this, similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And even greater than that associated with obesity. But we haven't focused nearly as much effort on strengthening connections between people as we have on curbing tobacco use or obesity. Loneliness is also associated with greater risk of cardiovascular disease. Dementia, depression, and anxiety for our health and our work, it is imperative, imperative, that we address the loneliness epidemic quickly. Lest we think that this is simply an American problem, back in 2021 in Japan, Suicide rates were skyrocketing so much, and of course COVID didn't help things, right? The pandemic didn't help things when it came to connecting with people. 
But suicide rates were skyrocketing so much that for the first time, Japan appointed a minister of loneliness. Did you know this? Somebody whose job is to work with the Japanese government to address Japan's loneliness epidemic. Japan faces the same problem that we do, that a lot of industrialized nations do. We're lonely. And listen, I've seen it as a pastor. When I was in seminary, I interned for a semester as a hospital chaplain. I was doing a unit of what's called CPE, clinical pastoral education, learning about being a pastor in a clinical setting, hospital setting. Well, the hospital where I interned at had a policy that nobody died alone. So if they knew of a patient who was dying, without any family or friends, the hospital would send a volunteer into that person's room just to sit with them, a stranger, but somebody to be with them as they were taking their final breaths. The hospital sent a lot of volunteers to do that very thing. We're lonely. It's not good for us. Do you know that we are 30 times, not three times, not 13 times, we are 30 times more likely to laugh with other people than we are by ourselves. And what does the scripture say about laughter? That it's good for us, that it's, it's cheerful medicine, right? We are also more resilient when it comes to facing life's challenges, like a cancer diagnosis or a job loss or a strained relationship with a child. Harvard University, you ever heard of Harvard before, this tiny school up in Massachusetts? Harvard University did a study, it was a long-term study. What they did was they followed a group of men over the course of 75 years to try to figure out why did some of these men experience more happiness in life than others? And what they found was it had nothing to do with their education level, it had nothing to do with their career success, career accomplishments, it had nothing to do with how much money they had, what kind of house they lived in, it had everything to do with the quality of their relationships. Those who had closer connections experienced more satisfaction in life. God doesn't call us to do life by ourselves. God calls us to do life together. I love what the author of Hebrews has to say about this in Hebrews 10, verse 25. Let's read this together. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Folks, in addition to growing spiritually, our hope and our prayer, the prayer of the vision team, is that through these community groups, relationships will be formed and developed that will sustain us and that will last a lifetime. Ideally, they'll last a lifetime. So with all that being said, do I have your attention? Here's what we're proposing. This is up here on the screen. Now, we have three existing groups in place from a while back because we did a launch of groups uh, some years ago. Some of those groups are still, uh, they still remain in our church. So we have three existing groups, and our plan for the fall is to launch five. How many? Five new groups, or maybe six, depending on how synapse go. Now these groups, I want to be clear, they are open to everybody. Even if you are already part of a Sunday school class, that's wonderful, remain in that class. Even if you're already part of a men's group or a women's groups women's group, these groups are still open to you. And in fact, our prayer is that as many people as possible will sign up for a community group. 
these groups will launch next week, um, August 13th. In fact, Pastor Will and Teresa Cunningham, they're going to give a sermon about this. So these groups will, I should say signups will start next week, uh, August 13th, with information about the dates and the times and locations and the leaders and the bulletin. And then these groups will launch next month, the week of September 10th, just after the Labor Day holiday. We figure that by that point, everybody will hopefully have their full schedule in place. Now, these community groups, and you're going to hear more about this over time, but these community groups will have anywhere from three to a dozen people. No less than three, no more than a dozen. It's hard to really get intimate with people if there's more than 12 persons there. Plus, Jesus had 12 disciples, didn't he? So we figure that's a pretty good place to stop at. Now, most of these groups will meet either in homes or in coffee shops or restaurants. Some of them will meet here on campus, and at least one group will be 100% remote because we know that we have people in our congregation who don't live in this community or maybe they're homebound and it's difficult for them to get out of the house, and so at least one group will be 100% online. We really want to be as inclusive as we possibly can. Now listen, I realize that you may be hearing all this right now and thinking to yourself, come on, Chris, that sounds nice and good. I get where you're coming from, but, but right now, it just doesn't work for me in this season of my life. That's just, that's just one more thing to add to my calendar. My calendar is already pretty busy. I get that. I do. But after a lot of conversation and prayer, this is what our vision team kept coming back to. So our hope is that these groups will be a blessing not a burden, not a demand, something that will energize you, something that will feed you, something that will give life to your soul, and yes, something that you will make a top, top priority. There was a man named Frank. Frank lived in a small community in fact, the community was so small, there was just one church. It's a little country church. Well, Frank was fond of saying, I have no need for the things of the church. The church is not my business. I work hard. I take care of my family. Everything else is just fluff. Well, one day, a new pastor came to that church. He didn't meet Frank at the church, but he met Frank somewhere in the community. And Frank came up to him and said, Pastor, it's nice to meet you. But I want you to know, you're not going to be seeing me in church. I have no need for the things of the church. The church is not my business. I work hard. I take care of my family. Everything else is fluff. Well, one day, much to everybody's surprise, especially the pastors, Frank showed up, and he asked to get baptized, and the pastor baptized him. Well, Frank was kind of an intimidating person, so the pastor had to work up the courage. And then he came to Frank one day, and he said, Frank... Do you remember when I baptized you? Yeah, I remember that. Well, I'm, I'm sure you still work hard and take care of your family. Of course I do. Well, what changed? You said that you had no interest in the things of the church. You said that the church was not your business. Frank paused and then he said this. Pastor, I didn't know what my business was. I didn't know what my business was. After a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, 
Our visioning team believes that community groups are our business. So my encouragement to us, my ask of us, let's make them our business. Let's step into God's preferred reality. Let's embrace the future that the Lord is preparing for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.